she said, yeah. She said she's known you since the day they adopted you. And I said, what? She said, she said she's known you since the day they adopted you. I fractured. Hello, you are listening to NPE Stories. This is a podcast where NPEs can share their story. I am your host, Lily, and I found out I was an NPE through an ancestry DNA test that changed my life forever. NPE is a term that stands for not parent expected or non-paternal event. This means that one or more of our parents are not who we believe them to be. NPE Stories is a podcast where NPEs can share their story of what their original family was like, how they found out they were an NPE, and what their journey has been like since the day they found out. And welcome to episode 160. And I just went to the Untangling Our Roots Summit a few weeks ago, and I had the pleasure of meeting our guest there in person. So I'm just going to go ahead and introduce him in right away, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the summit. But today, I am speaking with Fred Nicora, right? Yep, yep, you got it right. Thank you. Hi, thank you, Lily. I'm I'm excited to be here with you. It's so nice to see you again after that uh, <laughs> crazy weekend. Yeah. Uh, how did that go for you? It was amazing. You know, I mean, and I I've already kind of documented in a couple of places that um, I am so excited to see that there's a number of communities that have I'm going to say similar issues, similar causes um, that are coming together and starting to unify as a voice because, um, you know, I, I discovered in 2000, I was adopted. And um, back then <laughs> the, the dialogues just weren't, I'm going to say of the same caliber, neither quantity nor quality as what they are today. And um, to see this summit come together where we're bringing together, you know, not only adoptees, you know, which I am part of, but NPEs, which I learned I'm also part of. Yes, you are. And, um, you know, MPEs, which is, you know, kind of an, another kind of twist on it. Um, but um, just really getting to see where those commonalities are and find, you know, those areas of intersection where we all have, I'd say, similar concerns, and I'm going to say valid concerns, and we're able to come together and support each other and help build our community as a whole, you know, and mm -hmm. even I'm going to say with Within the adoptee community, seeing the dialogue increase between adoptees and birth mothers and adoptees and adoptive parents, you know, that is very exciting to me because I think until we can figure out how to start to speak as a unified voice, um, we're going to continue to struggle to really make headway for any of us. Yes, that's, and I think that's why they made this summit. Um, I'm speaking about the Untangling Our Roots Summit. That was the first ever summit to unite the adoptees. A donor conceived and an NPE community. That's why they said they were joining forces with the adoptees is they didn't want to reinvent the wheel. There's so many similarities we have in our stories, like with reunification, rejection, uh, finding out your, your true roots, your genetic heritage. And it's like, oh, this applies to all of our communities. We should, yeah. we should combine forces. Yes. That was, I was amazed that I, had so much in common with the adoptees there. And now you found out you are an NPE. Cause when I heard your story, I was like, Oh, he's an NPE and an LDA. <laughs> yes. I heard you speak 
also at the National Association for Adoptees and Parents, they had a happy hour a few months ago. And I was, yes, I was, I, I was, I was, yes, I was honored that they had um, asked me to uh, record a session with them. And um, it, it was exciting. That was actually pretty early on in my recording. So hopefully I'm not going to be doing quite as many ands and ums and um, you know, it, it takes a little practice to get it back under your belt. And I'm going to say I was a, a high school and middle school teacher for 20 years. So it's not like I'm not used to talking in front of people. I can do that. Yep. Uh, but it's been a few years since I've really been, you know, in key again. And uh, that, that's been a tremendous organization for me just to connect there with the adoptees. And, and I'd say one of the things that I, I've come to appreciate and really understand at a different level is um, initially when I discovered I was adopted, you know, back in 2000, I felt very alienated from the entire world. I didn't necessarily feel like I felt, um, connected to the, the adoptee population at large, uh, because they were missing that element of surprise. And that was such a big part of what happened to me. Um, and so as we got together, you know, as time went on, I learned that actually, Many of the core issues that adoptees face were issues that I had been facing that I just didn't realize they were due to the fact that I was adopted. So it it enlightened me in many regards in that side. The other side, I'm going to say that was great, you know, and I this light bulb went on at the summit was that really as an LDA, I'm kind of an overlap between NPEs and adoptees. Most adoptees know from their earliest memory that they were adopted, uh, but that's not my story. And most NPEs find out very much later in life and have to go through a total identity rebuilding in order to just get a foundation under their feet again. You know, And so when I started to put those pieces together, I saw that actually my story and who I am is actually at that intersection of both those communities. So it was great to see all those communities come together. You know, I think mm-hmm. in the essence, or in the end, we're all really looking at the puzzle of identity and figuring out how that applies to us and what we can do to help those coming up behind us have an easier ride, I guess I would say. Yeah. And so you found out in 2000, 2001? Yeah, actually, it was 2000. Um, I was 41 at the time. If you, I'll, I'll just hop right into my story here. Sure. Uh, and I'll give you a little uh, backstory to it. I, I was raised uh, in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. It's a suburban Milwaukee community just to the west. I, I call it a dead middle, middle class suburb uh, that I grew up in. I was raised as an only child. I was raised now here's where and I'm going to throw some of these little hints out as I go along through my story. Uh, I was raised by two people. Uh, Nick and Chick were my parents. They They were awesome. Uh, for the most part, I, I loved them dearly. They they were very loving, very caring parents. Um, I'm a late discovery adoptee. I think they made a mistake. They should have told me. <laughs> but that that's that's the one thing I would say that yeah, I think they made a mistake. But it's all right. I can still love them. I can accept them. I they they gave me a good life. They provided for me well. Um, you know the the things that started in retrospect that I look back on, I. I didn't look like them. I didn't act like them. I had extended family that I didn't behave like them. I was just an odd duck. And I never really could figure out exactly why. And I mean, I'll say on the appearance side, 
I'm primarily Norwegian, English, and Scottish. So I've kind of got the Viking package going, you know, and if you look at my parents who my father was a hundred percent Romanian, my mother was a hundred percent, or she wasn't a hundred percent heavy Polish with a little German thrown in there. Um, they look exactly like the people that you see on TV in Ukraine. You know, I mean, they were dark, short, they had, dark, you know, dark features, uh, and, and they, they were of that demeanor. And so for me, it was kind of almost like I was Thor and I was trying to grow up figuring out how to be more like Dracula. You know, that's the only Romanian kind of superhero I was aware of. And nothing really made sense in that regard. So there was a lot of mystery growing up. I, I'm going to say my parents did the best they could. They, they did provide a loving home. I know they sacrificed a lot. Uh, they gave me many privileges. They gave me a, a foundation. I went on to college, uh, you know, enjoyed a, a good life in that regard. Uh, but I am going to say I did struggle with identity for the vast majority of my life until I found out. I knew something wasn't right and I couldn't put my finger on it. Being adopted just wasn't in my radar screen. I just didn't see that as the option because it's interesting. So many adoptees that I talked to, even the late discovery, you know, they'll often say that, you know, like I always thought I was adopted. I didn't think I was adopted. That didn't cross my mind, and, and it should have, quite honestly, because I didn't, I didn't fit. It was a puzzle. It was a puzzle I never could put together. Um, but what I would say is, you know, when I did discover, it all made sense, but nothing made sense. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Um, I was living up in the Twin Cities area, and I believe you're from Minnesota. Um, yeah, so I lived up in the Twin Cities area for about ten years. All three of my children were born up there uh, in the Minneapolis greater area. Um, and uh, we decided to move back to southeastern Wisconsin. My now, uh, unfortunately, ex-wife is from Pennsylvania. I was from southeastern Wisconsin. As we had our kids, we wanted, I in particular, wanted them to be closer to extended family. I grew up around a very, very large extended um, close family. And that was something we were missing living out of town. So I had a, a deep drive to move back. My ex-wife really wasn't as on board with that. And to her, it was almost kind of a, a mystery and an enigma why I was so driven about that. So we moved back in 99. Um, at the time, I uh, was, because both my parents had passed away. Both my, my father passed away in 93. My mother passed away in 97. I was an only kid, so I was with both of them at the time of their passing. Um, and that, that was hard. They both died of cancer. Those were long, hard battles. I, I was with them through those battles. Um, and I, I did the best to support them. In retrospect, it, it's kind of amazing because, you know, I, I probably said some things that were inappropriate, um, not knowing what was going on. I remember there was one time in particular, my mother was at her very final day. She was having a hard time letting go. And uh, I, I was trying to comfort her. And, and I told her, um, you know, oh, mom, just, you know, look, isn't that beautiful? Your grandchildren are, are playing at your bedside. And, and and they're really because I had two older girls, well two girls. Uh, they're they're the older of my three kids. Uh, they were I think probably four and three at the time. And uh, I made the comment, you know, it's kind of like that genetic relay. You live on forever. You know, little did I know it. It really wasn't part of the equation. I'm surprised she didn't say something at that point. But anyway, um, so fast forward, we moved back to the Milwaukee metro area uh, on my mother's side. She had twin uncles or twin brothers, which were my uncles, and they had a 60th birthday party at a large restaurant on the southwest uh, corner of the Milwaukee Metro called the Embers. There was probably about 250, maybe 300 people there. 
uh, it was a very connected family. Uh, they both, they, it had deep roots in Milwaukee, uh, came from old farming families. So they were big and large and loud. And um, while I was off getting beverages, uh, I, I returned to the table and uh, my wife looked at me and said, well, actually she, she pointed to one and she said, is that Alice? And I said, no, but I knew what she meant because Alice was known to get things confused. I said, no, that's actually Lydia. Why? And I said, she's sharp as a tack. Did she say something? And she said, yeah. She said, she's known you since the day they adopted you. And I said, what? She said, she said, she's known you since the day they adopted you. I fractured. I, I went to find Lydia. Um, and God bless her soul. She, she must've been 85 or 86 at the time. Um, you know, I was afraid I was going to give her a coronary, but I really was, I, I, I was about as subtle as a bull in a China shop. You know, did, what did you just tell my wife? Uh, oh my God, you didn't know. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have. Um, and as things unfolded, most of the people there knew I was adopted and I just was the only one that didn't know. So I, at that point in time, felt, you know, it's kind of funny when I look back at that, because I'm going to say, to me, it seems like it's an in, inappropriate emotion, but I felt embarrassed. I felt incredibly embarrassed that all these people knew something about me that I didn't know. You know, it was kind of a weird sensation. You know, eventually that yielded to pissed off, anger, a sense of betrayal. Um, but it started out with that embarrassment. Um, I got my family. I left immediately. Um, I, I pulled, you know, everybody out of there. It was kind of weird. I remember looking back at the restaurant as we were pulling away and seeing all these people emerging out of the front of, you know, cause I, I hijacked the party. I didn't mean to, but it was no longer a birthday party. It was Fred's coming out party is what it turned into, you know? And, um, I remember looking at them and just thinking like, wow, I've never thought of them as a them and me as an, you know, an us and a them situation, but it, it felt like a complete severance. You know, I just felt that disconnect at, at a very substantial level. I, I took my family home. Uh, we were living North of the Milwaukee Metro at the time. Actually, we were living on Lake Michigan, which was gorgeous. Um, and I, uh, spent the rest of that night and part of the next day, I'm going to say doing an official shakedown. I ran around to anybody's house that I could think of that might have pieces of information. You know, my parents were dead already and I was just trying to figure out, you know, what's the true story, what's going on. It was a weekend. I really couldn't contact the state. Um, but they, the, many confirmed and many confirmed they knew, you know, I mean, and we're not talking just aunts, uncles, there were cousins, family, friends. I mean, this was not a secret. The only one that was in the dark was, was me in this situation. I actually went to high school with uh, a, a daughter of my cousin um, who was the same age as me. We graduated in the same high school graduating class. She knew. So I, to this day, I really don't know if there's other people in my high school graduating class that knew too. You know, I, I haven't really had that conversation with her. I don't know if she'd be upfront about that. I'm not sure. You know, it'd be kind of interesting. Maybe I will. Yeah. 20 years later, I could still go back. There. Yep. Um, so anyway, uh, that, that was the great shakedown night. One of the few pieces of information I did glimmer out of uh, my father's sister, who was still alive at the time, was that it was my father that was really the driver of why I was not made aware of my factual birth status 
apparently his parents divorced in the 1930s. At that time, his father basically left town. His mother was overwhelmed. She didn't know what to do. Uh, he was the youngest of four. He ended up in the county orphanage, uh, spent a couple years there until his sister was able to bring him out. So according to his sister, it was my father that really didn't want me to experience the horrors and stigma of being an orphan uh, that he had experienced himself. So it's kind of, a, and you know, I'll say knowing what I know of him, you know, he was a decent guy. He was a very nice guy. Um, I could see him doing that. You know, that would, that would be part of what I would say I would assume to be his personality and, and who he was. Um, my mother was, was much more direct and upfront. I think she tried to tell me at one point when I was young, uh, based on what a relative told me, I didn't take well to it. So she backed off and just decided to keep my dad's secret and, and let it ride out. You know, in retrospect, I, I'd have to say, I, I'm guessing by the time I got to be an adult, it was just out of control. They didn't know how to turn the ship around and just let it set sail. Um, I moved away when I was 18. I went away to uh, college. Um, I really didn't move back for many, many, many years um, until really permanently until that point where I discovered, you know, and that was, you know, I was 41. So basically for the 20 years before that, I, I lived out of town. And so I think at that point it was easier to keep the secret where it was they wanted to keep it you know because i just wasn't around i was in los angeles i was in dc i was up around the twin cities uh, many different places so that was the first swing of the wrecking ball and i'm going to say that was the one that knocked the foundation out from under me i don't think i gave up hope at that point at that point i was thinking i could somehow reassemble my foundation so that Monday morning was when I actually called the state of Wisconsin. And I, you know, I'm going to say I am a classic LDA. Before discovery, I just didn't get it. You know, I, I even, I look back and I had a friend of mine that uh, when I was an architect up in the Twin Cities, that's what I did while I was up in the Minneapolis area. Um, a friend of mine who was in a cubicle, well, actually they were drawing desks, but he was right next to me. Um, and he was actually searching for his birth, birth mother. He was raised in Illinois. He was born in Pennsylvania, and we were living in Minnesota at the time. So when he explained to me he was trying to get find out who his birth mother was in Pennsylvania, I made the false assumption that it was just because it was crossing so many state lines. That's why there was a problem. It didn't dawn on me that there would actually be a group of people that would be called out by law that would actually have diminished rights to factual birth information. That just wasn't part of what I believed society was. I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. I was blind to it. Um, and I think I was like probably the typical person that isn't involved in adoption at all. You just don't understand how the system set up and what it was originally structured to do. So when I called the state of Wisconsin that Monday, um, it, it really turned into a very interesting phone call because the first thing they did was confirm that, yes, indeed, I was adopted and that my records were housed at the state. Because my first call was to the county. I was stupid. I thought, I'll call the county. That's where my birth certificate is. If you're adopted, it's not. It's held at the state. Oh. So, yeah, and I'm in Wisconsin. So um, I, I called and Yes, they confirmed, but then there was a long part of our dialogue, I'd say the better part of that first hour, because I was actually 
at school at the time. I was teaching high school at the time in, in my local community. And um, when I moved back to Wisconsin, that's what I was doing. And what was, I had first hour prep. So it was front and center on my mind. So I had this hour window to try and sort some of this out. And quite honestly, from my standpoint, bring credibility to my crazy relatives' accusations that my parents had lied to me. You know, it it wasn't making sense. Even though I kind of knew it, I still, I needed better proof. You know, I, I just, I was having, I guess you could say I was having a trust problem at that age. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. I'm an LDA. I've got trust issues. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's it just, it's part of the package. I think. Yep. So really the, the rest of that hour was spent by that poor state worker trying to explain to me that I don't have rights to my factual information, that the laws for me are different than what they are for every other citizen that's not in my situation within the state. And for me, there was a process I could follow to find out who I was. Um, but that process would, first of all, include um, getting the redacted birth files. And this was the order it had to happen. Um, so I applied for my redacted birth files. So all my birth files went to the state. Some state workers combed through my files, probably two or three of them. It was a pretty thick file, you know, blacking out anything. So in other words, all these people were reading my story and making it, making sure I wasn't able to understand it. You know, the, the ludicrousy of this process that was going on just baffled me. I, why could all these people know who I was, but I wasn't allowed to know who I was? It made no sense to me whatsoever. So once I got that, once I reviewed that, then I was allowed to write a letter to my birth mother. I would turn that over to the state. The state would then read my birth or my letter to my birth mother, explaining to her her rights that if she wanted, she she could keep her shameful past where it belonged in her history and didn't need to go down this path if she didn't want to. However, her biological son was looking to find out who he was and needed her permission to have his identity released. If she would have turned me down at that point, I would have had to wait five years. I could have reattempted a second letter. If she would have turned me down at the second letter, it was terminal. I wasn't allowed to pursue researching my identity anymore. Now, from my perspective, this was all pretty crazy. But what options did I have? You know, I would say that second swing of the wrecking ball was coming to terms with being knocked down a rung in the societal ladder. I don't know how else to say it, but um, going into, you know, that weekend, I thought I was on the same ground as everybody else, you know, and I'm even going to go out and I'm going to own something that I'm not proud of, but it just is a reality of my life. I'm a white male. I was a 40 year old white male. I had no clue what discrimination really was. I was a teacher. I had gone through sensitivity training. I thought I was about as understanding as they could come. But I had no clue of what discrimination really was that a set of people would actually be called out. And what gets interesting, you start thinking about it, when you look at marginalized populations, and there's plenty of, you know, there's plenty of marginalized populations, the vast majority of those marginalized populations have it written into law that they will not be discriminated upon. Adoptees are the only group that I'm aware of that it's actually written into law that we must be discriminated upon. That is, we have different rights regarding our factual birth history than the rest of the general population. And that was just a crazy notion to me. 
that was the second swing of the wrecking ball. That made me realize life was not going to return to normal. At that point, I I really couldn't go back that there this was going to be a permanent change in my life. I would also say that I was only at the beginning of starting to understand the impact that this would have on me. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, initially there was a sense of embarrassment that gave way to, I'd, I'd say, some pretty um, healthy anger, uh, as well as a sense of betrayal. Uh, I would say I was very confused. I felt very isolated. Um, I was having a hard time relating to others. I was having a hard time trusting in anything. As, as you know, I'm going to say, the days started to turn into weeks and the weeks started to turn into months. I realized that it wasn't just a matter of my parents not being who I thought they were, but it was a matter of everything that I had built my life upon in terms of establishing my identity and understanding who I was really had a basis on those early years of building myself through trusting my parents in terms of who I was. Um, and, and I'll also say, if you start thinking about the magnitude of who is all aware of this, I've come to realize that when you harbor a large mistruth, a large lie, um, something that's not true, uh, between it within a relationship, you hinder that relationship really from true emotional intimacy. That you you are not you you can't really feel the relationship going in either direction because there's there's a block there, um, there's a filter there. So I have to also understand that, and I came to understand that all those that interfaced with me interfaced through the lens that. I was the orphan child that, you know, we were all protecting from his horrid past, you know, from the shameful origin from which he came. Um, and there, there are just certain <laughs> aspects of interpersonal relationships that go with, with that kind of a mindset. So as time went on, it became more and more clear that this wasn't just a matter of mommy's not mommy or daddy's not daddy. It was a matter of, I don't know who I am anymore. And that was probably the, the biggest thing to come to terms with, that I had to reestablish who I was from a whole different perspective and context. The other thing I'm going to say, which is, it, it's another I'm a self-disclosure here, is, as I mentioned before, I would not have viewed myself as a, a, prejudice, a prejudicial person or as a person that held you know, beliefs uh, toward other populations, um, you know, and, and treated them according to those. However, what I what I came to realize is when I found out I was adopted, I suddenly had to reconcile that with myself. So I realized I was formulating opinions about who adopted people were based on my interactions. I remember in first grade, there was a kid, and I'm going to call him Johnny. It's not his real name. I, I came home one day, and this was the time that supposedly my i believe my mother tried to originally tell me i came home and i was talking about this boy johnny that he was disruptive he was loud he was argumentative he was difficult and i mentioned to her that from what i understood this may be because he's adopted and my mother said to me well how would you feel if you were adopted 
And I just told her I would not like that. That would not be a good thing. And I think that kind of shut her down right there, you know, um, which is perhaps unfortunate, but it's just the reality of what happened. But I'm going to say th- those opinions are are things that, you know, and judgments like that are, are what we we survive on because we have to generalize and, and make certain base assumptions. So all of a sudden I had to start wearing the clothes of being somebody that I had already judged in my own little world in terms of what they were and, and who they were. And it wasn't who I thought I was. And so there, there was a lot of reconciliation that needed to occur. And I'm going to say over, I'm going to say a good 10 year period in terms of understanding what it meant for me as Fred Nicora to be the adopted Fred Nicora. And many people will get into many discussions about names. And um, I, I will fast forward a little bit on some of this and say, I, I did reunite with my mother on the first attempt. Um, we had a, I'm going to say she, she was nice. She was kind. She did the best she could. However, what I will say is she carried a heavy blanket of shame with her, uh, through life. She really couldn't put that down. And I think that was probably one of the driving issues within our relationship, um, that I was not allowed to be recognized as her child. You know, she, she made it very clear that I'll let you know who you are, but nobody can ever know about this because Mm -hmm. Frankly, I never told my husband, had you even come out five years ago, I would not have let you find out who you are just because he was still alive and there was no way he was going to find out about this. Hmm. Um, She did tell her other two surviving children. She had a total of three children. One of them died at the age of 20, which would be my half-sister. I never got to meet her. I did meet uh, my half-sister through her and then my half-brother. And I'm going to say they were were interesting relationships. My half-brother struggled with it. Um, I met him once he was kind to me, but he, he really didn't appreciate me being there. You know, it was a shock to him to find out his mother had a child before she had children with her father. I think he had to kind of reconcile that my half sister was aware of it before, um, before she told her that I had come forward and started searching. So that relationship with her too. And I'm going to say it, it just, a lot of people get very excited about, you know, the, the concept of reunion. And I hear of some that go great. Um, not many, most I think go all right. Um, I think many of us go in with hopes that we'll find something that we've been looking for the vast majority of our life. And then what we find are somebody that has our nose on them or, or maybe somebody that, they, the hair color is the same, or maybe somebody that overall kind of looks similar, but there's no history. We, we don't really know them. You know, in my experience is, you know, realistically with reunions, the meeting is the meeting and that's the beginning and you don't know where it's going to go. And if you can put away expectations, the chance of it becoming anything are probably greater, um, but they're challenging situations. You know, my birth mother never could get over the shame. She wanted desperately to be around my kids. They were her grandchildren. But um, if we met in a restaurant, we had to go in separate doors. We could meet inside. We couldn't leave together. I wasn't allowed to go to her funeral. She was afraid people would figure it out. Oh, it's terrible. It's, it's harsh, you know, and, you know, I'll say, Lily, I listened to your story and, um, you know, as I listen to yours as I listen to others. And um, I think that's one of the strengths that our community has that 
you know, regardless of whether you're an, an NPE or an adoptee and you go into reunion and um, you struggle with how that's going to play out. Um, and unfortunately, we do go in with expectations. We have hopes. We have dreams. Um, you know, we, we've had often, in my case, 41 years of, um, well, I didn't I didn't really know. I, I wasn't aware, but um, it, it made sense. And so I, I did become very excited about the idea of finding people that were more like me you know unfortunately growing up my only resolution really was something's broke within me because i was the oddball what's broke within me it wasn't that something was broke i was just different you know and there was nothing wrong with it but yeah little information goes a long way mm. yeah i definitely went into thinking when i met my well when i i never met him my birth father I, but I definitely went in with hope and, uh, that, that was a, that was a mistake to have any sort of expectation for how another human would treat me. But yeah, I'm, it's a difficult uh, situation. <laughs> is there, it's difficult. Yeah. I like, I, I lose words when I think about it. I lose words. I get emotional. Are your half siblings? Are you, do you have any relationship with them to this day? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'll say my birth mother did identify who my birth father was. Um, and so I immediately looked for him. I found him on the social security death index. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, it's a tool where you can find out um, who has passed away already. Uh, and he had passed away in 1993. So I was never able to meet my birth father. And really, um, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it here. So my story is documented in my book. I, I wrote a book, Forbidden Roots. Um, and um, a lot of the story, because it took me about six years to come to, I'm going to say, some grounding of settling it, where it wasn't a total obsession 24-7 in my head. And um, that that's really what the book Forbidden Roots is. It, it carries the reader from the point of discovery, and I'm very open, very honest about it. But it was, it was hard. It was initially, I'm going to say, a very big disappointment um, for me that my father had passed away before I even had a chance to meet him. And I don't know if it's because that's my same sex parent that I became then, you know, obsessed with finding out what I could about him. Um, and I met, um, eventually I did meet a couple of half brothers through him. And, and that was very interesting. I did, you know, have relationships with my half sister and my half brother on my mom's side because she wanted to keep it so secret, I really didn't dive into her side too much. I really wasn't allowed to. I, I wasn't allowed to find out about her family, really, where they lived, who was alive, um, you know, until she passed away. And then I then I kind of took a pretty deep swing and found out mm -hmm. a lot. And it was interesting. It was a fascinating family, too. My father's family, interestingly enough, was amazingly interesting. I mean, it dated back to landing in America in the mid-1600s. Um, so there was, I had ancestors that fought in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Mexican-American War. They kind of took a big swath and moved around the entire country. Eventually, I came out of a branch that settled in uh, Missouri. Interestingly enough, I'm distantly, and I'm going to say very distantly related uh, to Barack Obama. Oh, wow. I, uh, that was a bit of a shock. It was kind of like, whoa, there's there's somebody I've heard of. That's um, cool. I, I also found out that my grandmother on, on his side, had actually a sister and a brother that were both um, in the Grand Old Opry Hall of Fame. 
Um, one had for being a famous songwriter, the other for some of the recordings they made. So it was, it was just a fascinating family to find out about. And um, I, I became enamored with it, you know, and during that journey, you know, as I list, as I started to learn about my grandfather who fought in the civil war or my great, great grandfather who fought in the civil war, you know, that's when it really dawned on me that my relationship with my great, great grandfather isn't any different than anybody else's walking around out there. They were dead long before they were born. So why am I barred from knowing about that part of me? Because it really is that part of me. You know, I also learned I had a a different name. You know, I originally was named Stephen Walter. You know, it was, um, I also found that I was um, discharged from the hospital at about three days uh, old. Um, and then I was placed in my adoptive home at roughly two and a half going on three months. Now, what gets interesting about that is um, I, to this day, have no idea where I spent that time. The state won't tell me. Um, I was adopted through Wisconsin Lutheran Social uh, Services, and their records are about as tight as you can get. You know, even as we look at different movements within states to try and loosen up access for adopt adult adoptees to their birth records, such as the original birth certificate, um, we still haven't even begun to crack the nut of how do we get into all these agencies who hold really kind of the secrets to the earliest parts of our life, the most formative months of our mm-hmm. life that we existed, you know, and that's what is to me just kind of appalling that Absolutely. it's my information, yet there's plenty of social service workers, case workers, lawyers, judges, you name it. Everybody else in the world can see this stuff. But for some reason, I can't, you know, and that's just. Appalling is the right word. It's your life. That's insane. It's your records. I, how this is still going on and that we're, you're getting redacted information and not able to even get information on your own records and birth certificate. That is unbelievable to me. Is that state of Wisconsin, or is that kind of across the board? Well, I'm going to say, you know, if you look at the statistics right now, roughly somewhere between a quarter and a third of the states allow access for adoptees, adult adoptees to access their original birth certificate or some of the vital records that are held at their state, you know, capitals. That's only about a quarter to a third. The rest are some kind of a closed or modified system. Wisconsin's actually considered uh, a modified because they have an intermediary. They the state will act as an intermediary and will contact your birth mother for you. They just don't say no, you can't contact her. The, the craziest part about it and here's what I just I today it, it just kind of baffles me is I look at it and you know okay right now Wisconsin's in the process. We've got uh, potentially a law it's SB15 that would allow adoptees access to their original birth certificates. Um, and that's, it, it's going to go into committee. Probably will be about another nine, 10 months before it's even up for vote. Looks like it might have a fairly good shot at going through. There's a number of good supporters on it. Wisconsin's a very, very divided state. Probably the biggest threat is this, the movements being brought up by re, um, Republicans. And at this point, it's not known whether the governor will just veto it for the sake of calling it a partisan bill and not allowing it to go through, which he could, you know, and it's crazy. I thought after all that, you know, it's going to get stuck up in that. But the other side of this whole thing, and it's part of what 
what I am so grateful and so thankful for people like you and all the other NPEs, the information's out there. And quite honestly, you know, if you kind of start figuring out if you if you know what you're doing, or if you use a search angel who's going to have skills in just dissecting the DNA databases, you can start to put together a lot of the pieces without using the state as an intermediary, without yeah. getting the factual documents. So what I'm seeing more and more, it's kind of crazy. It's almost like the states are shooting themselves in the foot by trying to keep it a secret because there's no way they're going to be able to. It, yeah. it just isn't going to happen. There's still going to be people that won't be able to get it through the DNA databases because those aren't 100% of the population. They're only people who self-select, you know, and those with something to hide are probably not going to be in the DNA databases, Yeah, but you get pretty close, you know, mm. and, and I've seen a lot of people get very close. And mm. actually I have got another twist on my MPE side of me. I'm, I've been on the other side of the fence too. And what I mean by that is when my book was getting ready to go out to uh, be printed, and this was about, about a year ago, um, I had recently submitted my sample to the Ancestry database. I had been in 23andMe for a while. I verified who my mother was through that. You know, At this point, I lost trust, so I wanted to make sure. So I went a, a step further. I decided I'd check into uh, the Ancestry database to find out if I could verify who my father was, just make sure that this time I wasn't being lied to again. Um, and it turns out I was able to do that. I found some of the cousins that I had identified through my own search. So yes, I verified that was indeed my biological father. All of a sudden, I got an email from this woman named Janata Love, who I never heard of before. And she explained that in the Ancestry database, we were first cousins and she didn't first or maybe second cousins. And she didn't understand how that was possible. Her only clue was her father was adopted. And he never searched. And so she didn't know what his lineage was. And she thought, maybe I'd be able to shed some light on that. As I started doing the legwork of figuring out who she's related to, that I'm related to, and what the percentages were, I figured out her father was my half-brother. It turns out my biological father had another child that was given up for adoption nine months before I was born. Wow. And unfortunately, he died at the age of 50. Um, he was. The adoptee type that did not want to pursue, he wanted to protect uh, his parents and uh, probably had some bottled up stuff going on. He uh, died of, um, I'm going to say, some lifestyle issues, that um, ab abuse issues, su mm -hmm. substance abuse issues that related to an early death for him. Uh, a lot of the same things that contributed to an earlier death for my biological father. Um, it was a wake up call for me. My blood pressure started going up and Trust me, I've taken it pretty seriously. Wow. <laughs> I'm, oh. I'm not going to let that one slide. I've already outlived both of them, you know, both my father yeah. and my older brother. So, Wow, that's amazing. So you, you, he had already passed, your half-brother had already passed when you found this out? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it, it, finding out that there's substance abuse issues or alcoholism in your family history. I mean, these are things that you'd like to know, you'd like to be aware of. And then you start, sometimes you can start seeing the patterns with family members. Once you find out your true roots, I know I have, I, things start to make sense when, when I put the pieces together and see who I'm related to. Yes. But she was showing up as a cousin because that would have been your half brother's daughter. So the Santa Morgans were such that she wasn't showing up as a niece, but more like a cousin. Well, 
everybody's def- in, in uh, at least the, the databases I use, everybody's defined as either a first cousin, a second cousin. That's or true. Cousin. That's true. Um, yeah. They're kind of, yeah. so, so she was, I think we shared roughly 12% of our DNA, which mm. was very high, mm. you know, for somebody that wasn't sure how we were, you know, we didn't know how we were related. Right. Um, and so when we figured out it made sense, the other crazy thing is I went up to uh, Minneapolis actually for a book signing just uh, about a month ago and met her for the first time. And she brought more pictures of her father. I'd seen a few and it was crazy as I'm looking at these pictures of this guy, all of a sudden I'm realizing the entire section of his eyes and his nose and his cheek structure were mine. Wow. They looked like me. And so to all of a sudden see me plastered onto another person freaked me out. Yeah. It just freaked me out. It was kind of like, this has now gotten too strange again. It hadn't been too strange in a lot of years. So <sighs> it, it got too strange again. Yeah. And so, oh, so you're even, you do book signings too for your book. I meant to grab a copy when I, when I met you before, um, forbidden roots is the best place for that. The, uh, www.frednicora.com. Yeah, that that's my website. I also have a resource page on that website. A lot of good adoption resources, uh, that you can get. So you can get it right off there. It's also available on Amazon. It's available through Barnes and Noble as well a couple of other booksellers. Um, so it, it's generally out there in the public. If you want to get a copy, you should be able to. And I'd appreciate it. The thing I would say is for me, as I started diving back into the adoptee community, because I was actually absent for a number of years, I, um, I, I came to terms about 15 years ago that I had a problem with alcohol. Um, I needed to treat that. I stepped away from the adoptee community at that point. Uh, there was just a lot of anger that I, I needed to separate away, get away from. Got that under, I've been sober about 13 and a half years. I mentioned that to you before going on 14 years, um, at this point. And, you know, finally got to a point where I could put my story out there emotionally. I was, I felt on stable ground and I could do that. The, the wonderful thing about it, it's, made me start to read all the other, I'm going to say, memoirs and stories of everybody else out there. And I've recently just dove into these podcasts. I love podcasts. So my hat's off to you. Thank you for doing this. It's mm-hmm. it's a great way to take the lonely edge off of everything because mm-hmm. I've yet to meet somebody that goes through this experience that at some point doesn't feel pretty lonely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for real, you totally feel alone. You feel like no one else gets it and has experienced this and but once you find the podcast or the books, then you're able to see and and identify with a lot of the same feelings other people are feeling. I, I say it's like our community of nodding heads because someone will say something and it'll be like, yes, that's what I was feeling. That's what I was experiencing in that moment. Yeah, you feel not as alone because, well, years ago, we, this was kind of a new thing. We didn't even have the term NPE or LDA, not that I had heard of anyway. And And now it's like, oh, we have a name and we are beginning to come up with resources and podcasts and conferences and books. Yeah, you don't feel as alone. Yeah, one of the main reasons I decided to really put my story out there really had more to do with when I discovered in 2000, there was nothing on LDAs. I ran into one paragraph that basically said, you know, those that end up afflicted by this awful condition often end up in peril the rest of their life. You know, it was kind of a doom and gloom paragraph of, you know, the the bottom of the barrel. And um, it, I'll say it it didn't feel good. So I I felt the need to try and get 
more stories out there. The other stories that I, I'm trying to get out there, quite honestly, um, and I appreciate you doing what you do, the, the adoptee community, the MPE community, NPE community, the donor conceive community, heavily dominated by females. Um, if you go, if, if you get in, in this arena at all, you know, it's about 3000 females for every seven males and, um, males are affected just as much. I don't know if it's uh, social issues or what, you know, we're less likely to talk about some of these issues. Um, so I'm trying to help people break that stigma, um, get out and talk. Talking helps a lot. Talking helps heal. Listening to other stories uh, of the nature, it all helps heal. It all helps diminish the chances that I'm going to go back to a bottle, diminish the chance that I'm going to do unhealthy things as coping mechanisms. Because I have found, you know, in my in my own journey, I'll say, if I try and keep it buried, it's not going to stay buried. It's going to come out. Yep. And it's just, do I want it to come out in a productive way or do I want it to find a way out that may be self-damaging? Yeah. Um, I, I'll choose A. Oh, so true. Um, I forgot to ask you this beforehand, but if people wanted to contact you directly or reach out to you directly, would you be open to that? Yes, definitely. And you can do that on the website. Um, I also have a, a gluten-free bread and cookie business that I uh, work uh, market with. Yes. Um, so my email address, uh, it's fred at fredsbreadstore.com. And anybody is welcome to reach out through that email. Um, you can also find me, Fred Nicora, on Facebook and Fred Nicora on Instagram. Uh, shoot me a friend request. Typically, I look at the friend requests, see if they uh, if if they have a connection to the adoptee community, um, and then usually I'll approve if they do. If they don't, I need to figure out who they are because there's a lot of people that have less than good intentions. <laughs> right. Same. I'm like if I when I I get a couple friend requests a day and. And as soon as I see, oh, 24 mutual friends and they're all, you know, DCPs or adoptees <laughs> or NPs, I'm like, okay, all right, you're one of us. Yeah, yeah you're safe. Approve, you're safe. approve. Um, oh, Fred, thank you so much for sharing today. I, I'm going to link below your your website. Um, I'll link below the summit, the the link to your book and, and your email address as well. And this has been just wonderful. I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Yeah. Thank you, Lily. Thank you for the work you do. You do a tremendous service to the community and I appreciate you opening the door to all us adoptees as well, too. That's awesome. So thank you. These stories are here for us to identify with. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, email npestories at gmail.com. You do not have to give any identifying information. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, I'd like to hear from you. Subscribe to this podcast to hear more. Come heal with us.